hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. Before we begin, Carly? This is your regular reminder that this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you, Carly. Right, Cece, will you kick us off? Dear Carly and Cece, I'm seeking representation for Friend of My Father, a dual POV upmarket novel with Southern Gothic elements, complete at 70,000 words. It features small-town intrigue, similar to The Wife of Stairs by Rachel Hawkins and Godshot by Chelsea Beaker. Julie Barnes's boyfriend, Randolph, is so perfect, she often thinks she dreamt him. But when she finds out she's pregnant, her world begins to crumble. Randolph breaks the news to his parents and his father, the pastor of the largest church in their Bible-belted town, issues an ultimatum, get married or get rid of it. Julie chooses marriage to the man of her dreams, but things change when Randall's father retires from ministry and pressures Randall to take his place. Though Randall has never been interested in religion, he is soon sucked deep 
into his father's faith, and even deeper into his father's clutches. Julie's cousin Marcus is already struggling to keep up with his bills when a record-breaking drought dries up the lake and business for his boat repair shop. His meager savings drained. He can no longer make his mortgage payments and starts looking for help. However, the only help he receives comes at a steep price. Randall, an old friend from high school, offers to pay off his debts if he gets out of town for good. If he doesn't agree to cash out and leave, Randall vows to ruin him. Though Julie and Marcus were close when they were kids, they haven't spoken to each other since their grandmother's funeral 14 years ago. But when Marcus breaks into their grandmother's house, a house Julie purchased as an investment, the two meet again. There, they discover the common denominator of their worries, and soon they find the secret behind Randall's sudden hostility. But the secret isn't just about his family, it's about theirs. I have a BA in English literature and have held various writing-adjacent jobs, including teaching English composition in China and technical writing in the recreational boating industry. This would be my debut novel. Content warning, the complete manuscript includes an allusion to suicide. Thank you for your consideration. Name redacted. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Can you give us an indication of the word count there and then your take on that? This one came in at 357 words. Okay, so as an agent, there are things that make me feel confident. And then there are things that make me feel skeptical. And feeling both things are fine, but I think I'm going to share what made me feel confident here and what made me feel a little skeptical. The first paragraph, it's just such a perfect first paragraph. Like I have all the information I need. It's simple, it's to the point, it's meaty, it's like filled with information that I really wanted to know in a really compressed way. And it makes me think that this person worked really hard on this query letter, which is so great. So if I'm getting this in my query inbox and I read that first paragraph, I feel really confident, right? And I go, yay, this is gonna be a really polished query letter. The thing that makes me feel skeptical, and it's not a problem because I'm more than happy to be proven wrong, is the word count. We are talking 70,000 words for a dual POV novel. Like, are you going to be able to pull it off? Because that's not a lot of words per character, right? To develop a whole arc, a whole story. But hey, some people do it. There are books that do it. So I am a little skeptical, but I'm excited to, to see and to read. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to the plot paragraphs. As I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, okay, so we know a lot about Randall. I don't think Randall is a point of view character, though. It seems to be Julie and it seems to be Marcus. And yes, Randall is essential. But I'm wondering whether we need a little bit more on Julie's relationship to Randall and how it affects her and also on Marcus's motivation. So here's what I mean by that. The first paragraph, we have Julie Barnes's boyfriend, Randall, is perfect, right? But then they get pregnant and everything changes. How exactly does he change? I think we need to clarify that. I think we also, like right at the beginning, when I first read that his father issued an ultimatum, I was like, are they teenagers? Like, are we talking like teenager love affair and pregnancy? And then I figured no, because she bought a house. So probably they're not teenagers. But I was confused by that a little bit. I guess I'm just wondering when I read the line, he sucked deep into his father's faith and even deeper into his father's clutches. What does that mean for Julie in an external plot sort of way? I get that he changed. He went from dreamy to nightmarish. But what does that look like for Julie? You know, like what exactly happens to their relationship? I really wanted to know that. When it comes to the Marcus plotline, I really like that we have a clearly big problem 
But I'm wondering, like, why is Randall wanting him to go out of town? Like, is there an ostensible reason? Maybe the real reason is a secret, but what does Randall tell Marcus? Should we know why? I did wonder, maybe we don't need to know why at this point, but it's something I wondered. When I read the last paragraph, so when the two storylines came together, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. I really like that you brought this together in a way that made sense to me. I would love a last line on stakes. So, you know, the secret isn't just about his family, it's about theirs. And if they don't X, it will cost them their lives. Or if they don't X, it will cost them, I don't know, it will cost them something. If that's what your story's about. Maybe it's not, maybe it's more character driven, in which case that is okay. I am intrigued about these things I don't know. And that's a good thing. Like, I'm not supposed to know everything in the query letter. I guess what I'm getting at is that I have all these questions. Like, why does Randall want Marcus to go out of town? And why haven't Julie and Marcus spoken in so long? And how exactly did Randall change? And hey, the job of the query letter is to make me curious and to make me want to read. And this query letter is delivering. It's making me curious. It's making me intrigued. And it makes me want to read. So great job. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I also wondered about the dual POV and the 70,000 words. It's interesting that so many opinion pieces that are coming out now are saying that we're going to see much shorter books going forward. Publishers are taking on much shorter books. Of course, I read that after I finished a 105,000 word draft of my book. So I did have a bit of a panic attack. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Carly? All right. That was a great analysis, Cece. I'm going to add in my flavoring as well. So I'm just going to start off the top here. So the title, A Friend of My Father. To me, all of this kind of comes back to this idea of like, who are the two POVs? Because we have the dual POV. We're assuming Julie is the first POV. It's not really clear to me, unless I missed it, whether it's Randall or Marcus that is definitely the other POV. Like, I think there's just a lot of assumptions being made. And then the title, friend of my father. I'm like, well, the father's definitely not a main character. But then there's like friend of my father. So is that a spoiler? Like, does that is that something to do with the stakes later on? Is that a connection to the relationship between God? Because I don't know. I'm just so confused about what is happening between the title and the main characters. So I don't know if we need to spell that out. And that would just make that easier or how you want to handle that. But I was just wanted to raise that. The other thing is, again, like the framing here. So we start with like Julie Barnes's boyfriend, Randall. So we assume that Julie is the main character. And then we're like, well, is Randall the main character? I, I just don't really know that much about Julie other than she's pregnant. And then it's all framed through the men, really. It's not really framed through her. And again, is this intentional? Is it not intentional? It probably is to some extent. But we know that the majority of book buyers are women. And women readers are probably going to feel a bit more of a kinship towards a female character. So if we can figure out a way to learn more about her or center her a teensy bit more, I think that would really help us here. And I think that there are a lot of stakes buried in here. It's just they're really not coming to the surface here. Everything is quite vague in the last paragraph. You know, they find the secret behind the hostility. Secret isn't just about family, it's about theirs, which again is all great. It's just super vague. And when I still don't know who the main characters are, I'm like, I still don't know who I'm supposed to care about in terms of who these secrets are and who they pertain to and the stakes behind the secret. So again, the layering is all there. It's just what we kind of need to raise to the surface. The last thing I wanted to comment on was just the content warning. I think this is something where I would actually love our listeners opinion on because I know we've talked about it on the show before. For me, in this case, I feel like this content warning could go in a synopsis because it's like allusion to death by suicide, right? So it's not necessarily 
going to be on the page in a kind of like in our face type of way. So therefore, I don't really think it belongs here. But I would actually love, as I said, our listeners opinions, like, do you guys like having content warnings when we're reading things aloud? You know, is that helpful to you guys? Um, Definitely, you know, let us know um, what you guys think on that. Because as an industry trend, I'm seeing it wane a little bit in terms of, you know, whether it is always necessary. Um, So again, would love everybody's input on that. Thanks, Carly. What my brain's clicking on is in terms of that title, should it be a friend of my father or a friend of my father's? I think the saying is father's. Like, I I think that's the saying. So that's why I'm like, I'm wondering if this is some sort of clue in the title, as opposed to following with that like colloquial saying. Yeah, yeah. So whichever one you're choosing, do it intentionally. Alrighty, so what was in those opening pages? So our protagonist, Julie is walking into her late grandmother's house with her dad in tow. The house has been abandoned for quite some time. Her father is acting impatient and she reminds him that he doesn't have to be there. And he says he wasn't going to let her do this alone. So she's looking to save the house for sentimental reasons, though she tells him it's for practical reasons when he asks. They find unsurprising evidence of squatters. They're cleaning the house for hours. We see her go through a chest that used to store sentimental items. She asks her dad if he found something and he says no, but she spots something in his pocket and tells herself it's none of her business. He tells her he's proud of her. She says don't get sentimental. And she thinks of how their relationship moves through affection, annoyance, and anger. He decides to take the things to the dump. She's grateful that he's doing it. And she's driving home, but... For the last line, we know that even though she's driving home, home isn't actually hers. Thank you, Cece. Okay, so what was your take on those opening pages? All right, so I want to start by saying that from the very first paragraph, I could tell that this person has a talent when it comes to writing. I can just tell these things right away, and it was very, very obvious that she has a way with words, a way with language, just talent. The word is really talent, so So congratulations. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your talent with the world. I want to read a couple of examples so our listeners know, like, what does Cece mean when she talks about like, oh, this thing is really well written. So here are just two examples of many. The porch steps creaked under her weight. At least the wood felt firm. Spiderwebs shone in the high afternoon sun, something Julie was thankful for. She didn't want to walk into them. This is a sign of a sophisticated writer. When offering description on something physical... In this case, it's a house, right? Specifically the spider webs. This writer is weaving in the protagonist's unique perspective, her unique take on the spider webs. So the spider webs are shining in the high afternoon sun. That's something a camera could capture. But we get the line, Julie was thankful for that because she didn't want to walk into them. That's not something a camera can capture. That's something that only interiority can capture and therefore only a book can capture. And so it is a sign of a sophisticated writer, and it's something I'm always on the lookout for as an agent, and I so appreciate it. Here's another example. This is also describing the house. The house was built by her grandfather's hands and her grandmother's ambition. Like, that is so great, right? Because you're using built by physical self, hands, and also built by ambition. So not physical, so figurative. And that's just a really smart way to write. And I so appreciate it. And I love it. So I do want to start off with the compliments because this person really deserves it. Now, I want to talk about all the things I think could be improved. In my opinion, again, these pages are so great. But one thing as a literary agent, one thing I'm always on the lookout for are differences between a protagonist's physical world 
and their inner life. So how matchy-matchy are the two? If they're not matching at all, that might be a problem because it might create confusion. But if they're too matchy-matchy, then you might be missing out on opportunities to add interesting layers, including curiosity seeds. And everybody wants curiosity seeds. Here's what I mean by that in these pages. We have Julie present in her late grandmother's house. We have her thinking about the house. We see evidence of squatters. We have her thinking about the squatters. We have her talking to her dad and we have her thinking about her dad. To be clear, she's always adding layers in her inner life. She's thinking about the things she's not telling her dad. That's great. But in my opinion, it's not super realistic. She would think of things that aren't necessarily in front of her. And that's something I look out for on pages. Like your thoughts, your protagonist's thoughts shouldn't match the exact physical world they're in. Shouldn't match the exteriority. She's not thinking of a single other person. Maybe she could be thinking about someone who's waiting for her at home, the home that isn't actually hers. Maybe they had a fight. Maybe she wants to be there for 12 hours because she doesn't want to go home and deal with the fight. Maybe she's thinking about a secret. It could be something else. But I do think that the interiority shouldn't be as matchy-matchy as it is now. I think that's a great way to layer in just more interesting elements to these pages that are already very strong. Other ideas to make these pages more curiosity-inducing include give her a more specific goal. Right now, she's walking into the house and she's cleaning the house, but there isn't a super specific goal attached. I'm talking about a goal on a micro level. Maybe there's this one thing she wants to see. I don't know. It could be something sentimental. It could be something like their height marked against a wall or a door. I don't know. Maybe she doesn't want her father to see it. She clearly hides her sentimental nature from him. The The fact that the dad grabbed something and put it in his pockets instead of thinking it's none of my business Maybe she could, I don't know, try to investigate what it is. Maybe there's something to be leveraged there. And, you know, another way to to leverage curiosity here might be to dig deeper into their relationship because clearly there's messy emotions going on with Julie and, and her father. Like she says it herself. One question I had for the author, and if she were on the show, I'd be asking her, do you want us to like him, the father? Because I was not liking him at all. Until a line that read, we move through affection and annoyance and anger. And it's not that I started liking him there. But when I read that line, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm supposed to dislike him. You know, I thought it, I, I was disliking him and I thought it was intentional. When I got to that line, I was like, hmm, maybe this is not intentional. So I would just dig deeper in their relationship. I personally think that if we're not supposed to like him, that makes it more interesting. I think that a relationship where people get along and everyone's likable are just not as interesting to me. I like dysfunctional relationships. We will not get into why. <laughs> and But yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of opportunity here for curiosity-inducing moments. So really, my big note for you is just... Squeeze the orange, you know, squeeze the juiciness. Give us more curiosity-inducing elements. But it's it's really good overall. And I would definitely have kept on reading if this landed in my inbox. So when it's ready, please do send it to me if you are interested. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Carly, your take? I agree. I think the writing was great. One of the things I highlighted off the top when they were talking about the heat in the house was in the summer, the heat got hungry. How incredible is that, right? Stripping paint off the walls and kind of I love in a gothic novel how a house is pretty much always a character and, you know, most Southern gothic novels and gothic novels, you know, the house plays such a pivotal role. And so I like that this author was really able to take that on, but also make it their own really and just, I don't know, craft some credible languages there. One thing that stood out to me was, I guess I'm just really curious in this book, the relationship between religion and everything else, because... 
She says 14 years had passed and God only knew what lurked within. But God isn't capitalized with a G. And if she was religious as a character, it would be capitalized. And we know that religion is going to kind of come to play in this novel. So to me, does that mean she's not a believer? What, you know, was that intentional? And because this writer is so talented, I'm assuming this is intentional. And this is a signal to say maybe this, you know, our, our character here isn't all that religious. So I just wanted to point that out. If that wasn't intentional or was intentional, it stood out to me as something that was interesting. But, you know, I'm looking through my notes here and really everything was like, I love this. I love this. I thought it was great. And I really just read it as a novel. So, you know, whenever I can just forget about making notes and really just enjoy the pages and, and be in the moment, I think somebody did a great job. So well done. Thank you, Carly. Really awesome feedback there for that author. I hope they're doing a happy dance wherever they are while they're listening. All right, now we're going to go to our second query letter. Will you read that for us, please, Carly? Dear Carly, Cece and Bianca, I heard on a recent episode you don't mind reviewing query letters on works in progress. As I edit and polish my manuscript, the opportunity for your thoughtful feedback on the pitch and first pages would be incredibly helpful. Thanks for considering my work and for sharing your industry wisdom. The following is 383 words. I'm seeking representation for my book club romance, not that kind of threesome. An upmarket twist on an Archie comic-style love triangle set in British Columbia's lush Okanagan wine country. At 80,000 words, this single POV dual timeline novel combines the complicated friendship in Kristen Hanna's Firefly Lane with the self-exile and decade-later return in Carly Fortune's Every Summer After. Rosalind Parker and her best friend Elsie Ringel have been in love with the same man for 22 years, Eli Donovan who happens to be the third spoke in their best friend tripod. From endless summers tucked away in Eli's treehouse to annual combined birthday parties at Elsie's sprawling family winery, their unbreakable bond is decidedly platonic, thanks to a childhood pact they'd never couple up. Except for that one stolen night celebrating 18, when a crashing, passionate moment between Roz and Eli changed everything. Plagued with guilt and with Elsie none the wiser, Roz did the only thing she could to protect both her heart and their friendship. She packed up and moved across the country, keeping the two most important people in her life at a safe distance. Twelve years later, Elsie shows up on Roz's doorstep, pregnant, with one big question. Will Roz stand up as the best friend at Elsie and Eli's wedding? Despite the betrayal, Roz wants nothing more than to bury her feelings for good, and so she returns to the postcard-perfect Summerland to support them. But with Roz back in orbit, Eli questions if he's moving forward with the wrong girl. And when false assumptions about the clandestine night come to light the day before the wedding, uncovering rattling truths about another anchoring figure in the trio's past, they all need to confront where their hearts truly lie and if their friendship can survive the seismic shock. I live in Ottawa, Canada, where my day job entails all things corporate communications. When I'm not falling in love with another story, I'm desperately trying to siphon energy from my wild and fiercely independent six-year-old daughter. This is my second manuscript, and I'm actively querying my first. At the time of writing, I have three full requests with agents, something I credit to all the knowledge gained from this amazing podcast, exclamation mark. Thanks again for your consideration. All the best, Amanda. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was Amanda's word count there, and what was your take on that? All right, so she wrote it in for us, 383 words. That was helpful, thank you. Right, so let's start at the top. Not that kind of threesome. I mean, I'm gonna be perfectly honest with you. When I opened this pitch and was ready to do my critique, I was like, we're critiquing an erotica novel or a uh, you know spicy, spicy, spicy romance. So I don't know if this title is going to land the way you want it to land in terms of reader expectation, agent expectation. So. 
I love the like Archie comic style love triangle bit, like love that. But obviously that's not the title. So I really think there's some work to do here and just like really nailing the tone of what's to come in the book and what the exact right title is. Cause I don't think we've nailed it yet. But again, I know that this is a work in progress. So all my feedback will be geared towards that. Okay. So names, Elsie and Eli, these are way too similar. You have to change one of them. It cannot continue like this. Because later on in the pages, you shorten it even more to like Else and Eli. Like on the page, it's it looks exactly the same. So I definitely think we have to do something about that. That will need to go. Overall, this is a really strong opening paragraph in terms of the plot paragraph. But it's all backstory, right? It's everything about like them as kids and the bond and the promise they made. And, and we know, again, when the pages start and the second paragraph starts, it's 12 years later. So we know the book is starting 12 years later, right? So I think it's pretty important here that we are very kind of clear on where the book starts. So I don't think we necessarily need all of that backstory. That would be important. The other thing is, if this is all one POV, which you tell us out at the top, this is a single POV dual timeline novel, how do we know that Eli is questioning if he's moving forward with the wrong girl? I also don't like the use of girl here. I would prefer we use like woman or, you know, a more adult term. But how do we know that Eli is questioning this if this book is not in his POV? Because again, when the pages start, we know whose POV we're in. So that is something that I think needs to be, I don't know how it needs to be addressed, but that definitely, definitely came up for me. I personally love a messy wedding novel. I love messy wedding movies. I think that's just like an incredible genre. So I'm a huge, huge fan of that. So I like this idea and concept. Like if you were, if you sat down at a pitch session in person and you pitched me this verbally, orally, you know, at a pitch session, I would be like, this sounds super, super interesting. I do think there's a lot kind of, as I said, with too much with the backstory and all of that. But as a concept, I think this is a really fun concept. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take? I thought that this was a really fun concept because I love love triangles. Like I adore stories about love triangles. It's just inherently juicy and interesting. I don't know that I need the Archie style reference. It didn't bother me, but it just made me think that it was, I guess I understand because they're all friends. So that makes sense. But it made me think that it was like a love triangle between, you know, the girl next door who's sweet and nice and like the wealthy girl who's perhaps not so instantly likable. I don't know. It's been years since I read Archie, but I used to be a fan. I don't know that I need that, but it's definitely not bothering me. I very much agree that we have to change these names. They are way too similar. If you need them to have the same first letter because of some plot issue that's going to happen in the book, pick names that sound different. Like Elizabeth would already be a little bit better. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it just, it needs to be, but still not enough because it's still E-L. Like, I don't know. Think of something else. Emily? I don't know. I do think that it makes sense to write the wrong woman and not the wrong girl just because they are women. It's a small thing, but I would very much like that. And yeah, really great query letter. I was really intrigued. Okay, right. Carly, will you summarize those pages for us? All right, we start with chapter one, now hyphen the baby. That's how we start. So, because we know this is a dual timeline, we're starting in the present. We start with, we are in first 
POV and we are starting with Roz opening the door and her friend Elsie is there. They haven't seen each other in a very, very long time. And we find out that, you know, the kind of relationship is still there in terms of like how they know each other and how they kind of get along and their expectations of like, oh, this is how the other person's going to behave. But she has just told her the big news, which is she is pregnant. So a lot of this in terms of the opening pages is just her stepping into the room and where they should go. And again, them figuring out how to act within each other. So there's not a huge amount of actual plot happening here, but it's just that we figure out the information. We know that again, like in the query letter, they have separated, they haven't spoken for a really long time. And that is kind of where we, where we end off. Awesome. Okay. So what was your take on that? All right. So I will say that this did feel really rough to me. And again, I know you completely told us this, that these are you know, purposefully rough pages. You are working on this. You're just trying to get our opinion as an educational resource. So I agree with you on that. It came off as rough to me. And I'll point out the reasons that I knew it was a bit rough. So starting off with leaning too much on italics. When I see somebody using italics, there's usually a couple things that come to mind. It is either that they are obviously trying to put emphasis on certain words and therefore they are using italics for that purpose, but they're relying too much on the italics to do the work and they're not actually relying on their stylistic choices and you know their sentence structure and the word choice they're not relying on the actual writing to do the work of doing the emphasis and to me it's just a less sophisticated way of accomplishing that goal and and so it just again it's easy to be like highlight italics highlight italics you know when you're trying to put emphasis on a word versus being like how can I make something stand out the way that I want to as a writer and take control of this moment through my verbiage choices. Do you know what I'm trying to say? That's the difference to me. So italics, I don't love them. They come off, as I said, just not a sophisticated choice. The writing is also really like loose and young. You know, for example, you know, what I highlighted in my pages was to be begrudgingly fair. She does to love him. I mean, I've known it to be true from the moment we shared our first kiss at 14, tipsy and susceptible to any and all kind of influence thanks to that stolen case. And it, you know, it kind of just goes on like that. It just feels we're focusing a lot on the backstory. We're focusing a lot on the youth. And so it's obviously a choice the author's making. I would prefer that we start with these more like adult thoughts in terms of like where we are now, because you say, Chapter one, now, the baby, right? So like we should be in the now and not so much in the past because we already know that they know each other. So going down memory lane here really isn't that useful to me. I want a little bit more surprise. Like, oh, they haven't seen each other in a while. That's interesting. Not, you know, kind of, again, going back to when they were 14, you know, getting tipsy on wine. I made a small note about the way that they're talking about appearance. So she says, you know, her split hot dog forehead. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out what she was talking about. I think it's like the lines between our eyebrows. Like, you know, you guys aren't watching me. This is an audio <laughs> audio segment, but I'm like pointing between my eyebrows on my forehead. I call them like 11s. I don't know what other people call them. Hot dogs, lines. It took me a little while to figure out what a split hot dog forehead was, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I just thought that was interesting that they haven't seen each other in a while. And that was kind of what she was thinking about. It wasn't like, oh, what has she gone through in her life when I haven't seen her in, I forget how many years, you know, decade, that... I would be more interested in her kind of having a more sympathetic tone, being like, oh, what stresses has she had in her life to cause those 11s or hot dog lines or whatever you want to call them, as opposed to I'm noticing those hot dog lines. To me, that's the difference. Just that more that curiosity about what's going on in her life. And the hot dog lines come back again, like a page later, you know, 
really hot dog or not, she's still the most stunning woman in the room 99.99% of the time. That's another thing that felt a little young to me saying like 99.99, that felt a little bit young. So I'm really not sure how old she's supposed to be because I imagine they're in their late 20s, early 30s, but that felt a little bit young. And then I also pointed this out in the query letter, but it's the Eli versus Els. So she calls her the bandaid approach was the only way Els could deliver the bad news. But two lines before that, you're, she says, Eli and I are pregnant. We're getting married. So the Els and the Eli, very, very, very similar here. So those are kind of my main notes. I think this concept is really interesting. The pages felt really rough to me. So I'm just confirming to what you probably already know, which is this is an early draft. So I might be, again, pointing out things that are very clear to you. But that's what's kind of coming across to me is that they feel young. They feel a bit like loose. And I'm, I'm missing a lot of interiority here about like how they feel about each other over this time. Because the fact that they traveled from Okanagan to Cape Breton and she says 3,000 miles I'm like do you know how many flights and how many hours in a car it would take to get from British Columbia to Cape Breton like I I drove to Cape Breton two years ago from Ontario it was one of the longest drives of my life I mean so you'd be like I don't know where you'd fly into Halifax and get a car and drive as I said that was a huge commitment for her not to be like I'm gonna pick up the phone and call my friend or FaceTimer I'm going to travel 3,000 miles and get there in a very complicated manner to tell her this news. And on the page, it's great because I'm like, oh, I get to witness all of this, right? That was a choice as opposed to somebody picking up the, you know, a FaceTime. So I just feel like there's so much interiority we haven't got to yet. So Cece, what do you think? I agree with everything you're saying. What I'll add to that is my biggest note as I was reading this, and I was expecting the pages to be a draft because again, we're an educational resource. That is fine. But my biggest note was... You're leaking all the tension. Why do we love stories about love triangles? Because they're juicy. They're juicy and fun. But instead of using the juice, you're drying up the juice. Don't do that. So here's what I mean. The first paragraph, we have her, the protagonist, saying that this person in front of her, her best friend, is carrying the child of the guy she loves, right? Like, it's already in the first paragraph. And then four pages later, we have the friend telling her, we're pregnant. And then we have a line that says, the kill shot. And I'm like, why is this the kill shot? Because we already knew. So it's not a kill shot. She already knew from the first paragraph. I guess what I'm getting at is that it's very explanation heavy right now. And the way you're choosing to unfold the information isn't serving curiosity. So I will share an example of an idea I had that would perhaps be more curiosity inducing. At least it would for me, right? And probably this idea won't work, but it's just to frame my note in a way that's a little bit more actionable. Imagine if her friend were interviewing for a job via Zoom close to her, right? And this was the final interview. So they flew her out there and she knew about this, but the guy, Eli, did not know about this, right? At least that's what she thinks. That's why she's there. And so she has champagne on ice, waiting for the congratulations for the interview. She's excited to see her friend. They haven't seen each other in so long. The milestone birthday that happened, they couldn't meet. So she's like, yay, it's going to be just us. I'm so excited. And she's prepared for the news of I'm going to move here too. Maybe the protagonist is in a space now where she gets to be around them more, where she's prepared to rebuild her life. Maybe she's prepared to confess about the night she had with Eli because now they're adults, now they can talk about it. Anyway, her expectation is going to be of a, my best friend and I are going to connect. I'm going to tell her the truth. She's going to get a job near me. We're all going to be together again. There's wine on ice, Prosecco or champagne or whatever it is on ice. But then she finds out the news. 
Her friend isn't drinking. At first she thinks, oh, it's because he didn't get the job. No, but they flew you out here. Come on, of course you're going to get the job. I don't know, something like that, right? Oh, she's not drinking because she's pregnant. And then we have the surprise. And then not only is she pregnant, she's pregnant with Eli's child. Like, And then it's like a double whammy. It's like boom, boom, surprise, surprise. But the surprise only works if you have a different expectation before. And so the protagonist has to be convinced of something else, convinced that the reason why she's there is the job, convinced that they're going to celebrate with with champagne, convinced that this is a new start of her life where she's going to be more honest with her friend. But now she can't be honest because if she tells her about the night she had with Eli, she might be ruining this person's life because she's now pregnant with Eli's child. Like, And again, silly example, probably this won't work with your story, but if you had framed it that way, I would have felt the surprise right along with her. And as a very micro note, you don't want to title your chapter, the baby, not if the baby is a revelation, because again, people are going to read it and they're going to figure it out, right? Like don't do it. It could be dry January. I don't know. It could be something like that. It could be something totally different that makes you think, oh, they're not drinking because of dry January, not drinking because she's sad because she didn't get the job. Oh no. She's not drinking because she's pregnant. Anyway, this is all my very long-winded way of saying that I think you should leverage surprise. And it's awesome that you're getting feedback this early in your process because it does mean that you can improve it in a much more efficient way. So that's really cool. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I know when I go back and look at my early drafts, there's a ton of layering that needs to happen, interiority, emotionality, all kinds of things. And that's what I come back to. So, you know, it's great that you've got this and now you can just keep building on it. Okay, Carly and Cece, thank you so much for those incredible insights. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. It's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is from Aguas Buenas, Puerto Rico, spent her early childhood in Warrenoco, Massachusetts, taught theater and history at the University of Puerto Rico in Arecibo, and now lives in Houston. She is also the author of El Teatro Como Bandera, a history of street theater in Puerto Rico. It's my pleasure to welcome Elba Iris Perez. Elba, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful having you. I hope I didn't butcher the pronunciations too much. No, you did really good. Yay, I did Google them first, but Google has led me astray in the past. I have had authors killing themselves laughing at me, so in this instance, I'm really glad that it didn't. Right, so Alba, before we hand it over to you, I just want to give our listeners some context. The book we're talking about today is a cross-cultural coming-of-age debut called The Things We Didn't Know, and it explores a young girl's childhood between 1950s Puerto Rico and a small Massachusetts factory town. Now, for our listeners, I'm just going to read you the flap copy so that you get a bit of context. Andrea Rodriguez is nine years old when her mother whisks her and her brother Pablo away from Warrenoco, a tiny New England factory town that is the only home they've ever known. With no plan and no money, she leaves them with family members in Puerto Rico and promises to return. In the years that follow, Andrea and Pablo are brought back to Warrenoco only to discover a rapidly changing town and an all-American culture they almost but can never quite fit into as they navigate the social in-betweens, clashing family values and sometimes harsh realities of growing up, they must embrace both the triumphs and heartache that mark their journey to adulthood. Right, so... Alba, what I'd like to chat with you about today, which 
I loved seeing in this book is that you were the inaugural winner of Simon and Schuster's Books Like Us contest. Can you first tell us a bit about the contest and your whole journey through that to publication? Oh, yes. That was a fascinating experience. I had written this novel and I submitted it to about 12 agents and I got all rejections. And so I put it, you know, on the shelf, as they say, which now means you store it in a file on your computer. And I thought, well, you know, these stories about people from other cultures who come to the United States are just not interesting anymore, I guess. And I started writing a second novel. And then one day I'm looking through a magazine and I see this contest and everything about it just was so perfect for this novel that I thought, well, I should submit. But, you know, you think you start coming up with all these excuses of why it's going to be a waste of your time. (laughs) But I ended up sending it and I got this phone call, which is all over the Internet, where I was just shocked. I couldn't believe they were telling me that I won (laughs) out of 300 people. And so this is my first novel. So you can imagine how surprising that is that, you know, you venture into a new field and you actually win with a company like Simon & Schuster. So it was a huge surprise for me. And it literally has changed my life. And I've loved the whole process. Yeah, geez, that that is like a fairy tale. It is, you know, exactly. For, for authors, it's like a fairy tale. So just to be clear, this book is the one that you put on the shelf. It's not the one you worked on second. Is that right? Right. Right. And can you take us through the process of how long it took you to write it, including research and if you had beta readers, if you had feedback on it, if you hired a professional editor, how did that all look before you submitted to the contest? So one thing I have to say to writers is never, you know, go to agents until you're ready. So I had never written a novel before. I had just finished my PhD in history and I had been to Waranoko which is a place where I grew up. And I had decided that I needed to write a story about Waranoko. And I was going to write a history book. But things got very complicated for me. I'm in Houston. Waranoko is in Massachusetts. So for starts, you need money to get up there, you know, and a hotel and and rent a car and everything. So it was really expensive to take on this project. And so... I started dabbling just one day. I had this character in my mind and I just, I started writing about this, just, just writing this character as if she was having a conversation with someone else. And that started it. I realized that the archive that I was looking for by going to Waranoko was actually in my mind, in my memory. And that I could make up characters, that I didn't have to write a history book. I could write a novel. I could make everything up. So I went from the idea of writing, you know, a factual book of history to creating characters in this 
place that had always fascinated me. And it took me like two years to write the first draft. And I went to a conference because everyone that knew me kept saying, oh, go to a conference, get an agent. And I, I wasn't ready for that, but I didn't know that. So I went to a conference, I met an agent and gave her the, the manuscript. And she turned around and said, Elba, this is, it's a beautiful story. You have talent, but you don't know what a novel is. And I said, well, you know, what, what can I do about that? She said, you know, you can take online courses. And if I had your talent, I would do that put the novel away, take these courses, and then come back to it. And that's exactly what I did. I took courses at UCLA, the writer's program, writer's extension program, and put the novel away. And in one class, I used an excerpt of the novel, and the professors seemed to be fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, maybe I should keep working on this. So it took me eight years because I, I wasn't working on the novel for eight years, right? I took these courses, paused, took these courses, and started writing again until I then worked on characters, worked on setting, worked on description, you know, everything that a writer needs to do. I love that. I, I laugh every time I hear from people who say, I had friends and family members who told me, get an agent. Like, that's not something most writers have thought of. Like, they don't know they need to get an agent. And like, they're the easiest things in the world to get. You know, it's the same as people in my family who go, can't you get Reese Witherspoon to choose your book for her book club? Like, that's the easiest thing in the world as well, you know. But I love that this agent was able to, A, be really honest with you, but also do it in a way that didn't make you want to give up writing. Because I think sometimes we need the tough love. We need to be told, okay, you, you don't know what a novel is, so that you can go and figure out what a novel is. But you don't want to be told in a way that makes you go, oh, I'm so bad at this, I'm, I'm never going to write again. So. After you won this contest, Elba, did you get in touch with this agent again? Are you now represented by an agent or were you like, nope, I don't need an agent? She was an editor. Did I say agent? Yes. Yes. No. Oh, I'm sorry. No, she was an editor. Okay. She is an editor. If I Can I say her name Yes, here? of course. Her name is Marcela Landres, the manuscript madrina, <laughs> she calls herself. And she's based in New York. She's extraordinary. So, you know, I thought I'll go to a Latina agent because this is kind of a Latino story, although it's a universal story of immigrants from all over the world. And so I went to her. So then did she help you get the book into shape before submitting it? Or where did no. she come into it? I kind of lost track with her because I went to school. I started taking classes and then I came back, you know, to the novel and started writing, working on it. And, you know, when I was ready to submit it to agents, I thought this is going to be categorized as Latino literature. And I kind of was afraid of that because, you know, you never want to be given a seal that you wear on your head. And that's the only thing you are. And I wanted to appeal to a broader audience, but, you know, I just didn't know how people were going to 
take the novel. So I said, I'm going to go to another agent, but I want this to be uh, like an American, you know, and because I want to see how someone who is non-Hispanic will react to it. Will they find it boring or interesting or, you know, what the reaction will be? And so there was a conference here in Houston led by Chuck Sambuccino, and I contracted him to read it, and I had a wonderful experience with him. He had a few things to say about it, but he seemed to like it. And so there it was then, ready for, you know, the next thing I did was I incorporated the few comments that he, that he made, which were very few, actually. So taking the courses really had helped. And so Chuck was wonderful, very helpful. I prepared the query letter and I sent it out and I got like 12 rejections. Did you get anything there that was helpful or were they all just form rejection? Most of them were form rejections, but one agent said, I love your writing. And just that is enough to be encouraging, you know? She said, I love your writing, but it's just not what I'm looking for right now. If you ever have another book, another manuscript, and are looking for an agent, please send it along. And that alone was enough for me to keep going with it. But I didn't have anywhere to go. I had already chosen, you know, my top 12 agents and they had all rejected me. And so I thought, you know, I had heard that when you're in this process as a, a debut author, you need to put it away and start working at, on a second novel because that tells agents that you're serious. So if that novel didn't work, you're going to continue writing. And I took that advice to heart and a new idea came up and I started working on it. Yeah, I love all of that. Can you remember what magazine it was that you saw the contest in? Because I know our listeners are going to ask. They're going to be like, Bianca, where do we find magazines that list contests? I think it was Writer's Digest. Yeah. But it may have been Poets and Writers. Okay. Because I was subscribed to both of them. I just don't remember which one it was. Yeah, but for our listeners, you know, get one or both of these magazines. You don't have to get them every single month. You don't have to subscribe for a year. There's so much information packed into just one issue. Check if your library has them because these are incredible resources for contests and things like this. And I would hate to think of Elva's manuscript sitting in that folder, never seeing the light of day because those 12 agents passed on it. So maybe for some of you, it's time to bring those things out, dust them off and, you know, see who else you can submit them to. Right. So Elba, what I want us to discuss now is really writing scene, immersing people in a setting, especially one that they are not kind of used to accessing, right? Because like you said, you wanted to see how general North American readers would approach your story, how they would experience your story. And because this is set in Puerto Rico, 
besides being in Warrenoko, I mean, both of these places are going to be unfamiliar to your reader. So it's so much harder for you as the writer than just setting a story in Brooklyn, for example. You've got to do so much more work to create this world in your reader's mind. Can you please read for us parts of page 28 and 29 so that our listeners can see the description that you brought to this novel in bringing this world vividly to life? Sure. I'm delighted. So when I woke up the next morning, thick Caribbean monsoon drops pelted the zinc roof. Pablo slept next to me. Gusts of wind circled the house. Branches scraped against the cement walls. Storm shutters rattled as I stepped out of the bedroom in my underwear. Rocking chairs creaked on the porch where Mama and Cecilia spoke in subdued voices. Across from the bedroom, there was a small couch with yellow plastic-covered cushions and rusty metal legs, a set of keys, an old black wallet, a bottle of rubbing alcoholado superior, green from the herbs added to the bottle, cluttered a side table. Two old rocking chairs were strategically placed to take in the view beyond the porch. To my right, a red checkered plastic tablecloth covered a small metal dining table. With four matching chairs, one of them missing a cross rail on the back. On the kitchen table, a square tin can of Sultana soda crackers with an image of a woman dressed in a red belly dancer outfit. A bottle of pique, salt, and other spices were bunched up in a corner. Behind the chairs, an open window with an outdoor sink and faucet attached to a windowsill showed off a dense forest. Leaves whispered in the rain. Next to the door, an old rusty refrigerator hummed. On top, there were bottles and a fly swatter, a rusty machete covered in dried clumps of reddish soil leaned on the side of the refrigerator. The entire house smelled of coffee and burning wood. Smoke came through the door that led to a shady area outside with a fogon, the wood-burning fire pit where Cecilia cooked. Amazing. Thank you so much. Right. So this whole section is just so incredibly evocative. And it feels to me like a scene almost from your childhood, because I don't imagine it's a scene of something somewhere you went now and sat down and wrote that scene, because you're having to capture 1950s Puerto Rico, not modern day Puerto Rico. So can you take us through your process when sitting down to conjure that kind of image in your mind so that you can situate yourself firmly in it so that your character can then tell the reader about it. I have been in Puerto Rico in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and, you know, my my whole life. I've been there and back. And then I went there at the age of 12 and stayed for the rest of my life. And so I have seen places like that many times, you know, a house out in the country where there is, you know, a sink out of a window where people do their dishes. And 
a hut with burning wood, with a burning wood stove. And so I just had to, you know, sit with my memories. And I think the important thing here is to check off all of the senses and make sure that you're speaking to each one. So, I mean, that's what a writer does. Very much so. And this was so reminiscent to me of so many places in South Africa when, you know, the tin roof and the fire outside. And it was conjuring so many memories for me as I was reading it. Even though this is Puerto Rico, I was going, oh, wow, this sounds so much like places in South Africa. And I know sometimes when I sit down to write, if I'm writing a scene where there's a thunderstorm or if I'm writing something where the rain is dripping, I like to find that sound somewhere on YouTube or somewhere on the internet and listen to that while I'm writing because I find it so incredibly evocative. Because as you hear the rain dripping onto a leaf, you think about the leaf and then to explain the leaf. Did you use anything like that or was it just sitting with your memories, Alba, and allowing them to develop like photographs? Yeah, it was sitting with my memory. It's just, I don't know how you feel about your homeland, but for Puerto Ricans, every day that you're not in Puerto Rico is, is almost painful. You miss it. You're always going to miss it. And so I just bring it all back. And I would do that even when I wasn't writing. And, you know, I do that. You know, if you see me relaxing in my chair in the living room, I'm probably remembering the rainforest <laughs> yeah. or the ocean. You know, that's, that's our way of relaxing. Yeah, it was it was very nostalgic. You could feel the nostalgia. It was wonderful. So something that I want to chat about, because this is something I did with my debut novel as well. And something I didn't realize at the time when I wrote it is how difficult it is to write a nine-year-old character in the first person in a way that doesn't make her sound like a child. So it's her as the adult looking back on her life, but not bringing the adult voice too much into that experience so that there's too much distance with the reader. And this is what you've done here with Andrea. Can you speak a bit about that? You know, people have been asking about that now. I think the place again is so important to me. Waranoko is another one of those magical, beautiful places that you just, once you've been there. My husband went there once. I, I took my husband there once. And he brings it up in conversations, you know. Oh, it's like Waranoko, the trees. And, you know, and I, and I have this image. I took one of my sisters there who never lived there. And she was like, oh, look at those elm trees. People go to Waranoko and just, they look around almost like it's not a place on earth, <laughs> you know. And so for me to be there brings up my childhood because I was there as a child. And that's what brings me back to the feelings of a child and the thoughts that the things I wanted then, you know, a child wants to be out playing and riding their bicycle. What kid doesn't want that? So it was the place and, you know, recalling the place that helped me work through the character. 
Yeah, it's amazing how setting can bring character to life. Albert, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I love the book. We are linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Our listeners can get it there, support an independent bookstore and support the podcast at the same time. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful experience, especially for a debut author. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.